I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, welcome everybody to another edition of I-94. We are live tonight at The Dial. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good evening. And I would be joined by Mr. Michael Sack, but Mr. Michael Sack, unfortunately, is in Alaska selling ice to the Eskimos. So he is missing tonight's wonderful, very special guest. To my immediate right, he has written this book. You can see it. Actually, you can't. This is a radio show, so you can't see anything. It is called Soulless, the case against R. Kelly. It is out now from Abrams. He is the music critic, longtime music critic for the Chicago Sun-Times. He also does some other radio show on some other radio station that no one listens to, Mr. Jim DeRogatis. Thanks for being with us, Jim. You're most welcome. Was. I, I left the Sun-Times nine years ago. Did you? Leave? I thought you were still doing music criticism for that. Oh, no, 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 no. I teach at Columbia College down okay. the block. And well, see, that shows you how radio often show. I read the Sun-Times these days. Well, you know, mainstream media. Yeah, it's, it is. That's but why you, we love Lumpen. I think of you still, however, as the music critic for the Sun-Times. So if you have any music criticism, I'm just going to ascribe it to the Sun-Times. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've done other things, you know. Look, they I, had my I Velvet see. Underground book. We're, we're gonna so get, we're here to talk about that tonight? We're going to get into this. Because oh, that wow. Would be I didn't a know welcome, you had a Velvet Underground yeah, book. Yeah, this is good. So a welcome change. It, we're gonna, yeah, it is a welcome change, actually, after reading Solace, which is yes. a uh, grim book. So this book, for people that are not familiar, uh, Jim was the reporter that, when he was with the Sun-Times, broke uh, the story of R. Kelly. R. Kelly, for those of you who do not know, is currently uh, in federal custody, I believe, in Manhattan still. No, no, he's in Chicago. Has he been back to Chicago? Okay. So he is under indictment in three states, is that correct? Two states, and there are two federal indictments. He faces 195 years on 41 felony sexual crimes. That's a lot. That's more than anybody in the history of popular music. And when you consider that men have been treating women very badly from way before Frank Sinatra until way after Ryan Adams. He is truly, as he once sang, the world's greatest. So, (laughs) Jim is the guy that broke this story, and there's a very obvious question that I'm going to leave to the end. But tell us a little bit, Jim, from the very start, because you got under this story in quite an unusual way, which you talk about in in your preface. And in fact, in your preface, you note that you might have actually discarded the lead that you got. Yeah, I always bring it because it's a nice visual aid that you can't see on the radio. Which uh, is wonderful. This is the medium of the future. I, um, I, we deal with this all the time on Sound Opinions, and I will pass it around. Um, I had written a record review of Kelly's fifth record, tp2.com, and I had been at the Sun-Times. I left and went to Rolling Stone. I came back to the Sun-Times. Uh, and essentially, from the beginning, pretty much, I had covered him. And it's a great story for somebody on the pop music beat in Chicago, this guy who rises from singing on the L platforms and on street corners at backyard barbecues to become the dominant voice in R&B for his gen- really two generations now. Um, so I had reviewed the record, and, and it's a little bit of a cliche. I compared it to that classic R&B dichotomy between hot and horny Saturday night and tearful prayer Sunday morning. And in the greatest R&B artist, Marvin Gaye, or Prince, Al Green, the line between sex and salvation blurs. Sex can be spiritual. 
You know, but with Kelly, it was uh, whiplash jarring. You know, I want to ride you like I ride my Jeep, uh, sex in the kitchen, toss your salad, baby, all that stuff was so far out. And then the tearful prayers for forgiveness for unnamed sins were so odd and jarring. So I said, you know, I compared it to Marvin Gaye, and that fact says uh, you reviewed R. Kelly, you compared him to Marvin Gaye. Well, Marvin had his problems. They're nothing like Robert's. Robert's problem is young girls. So that's how it starts. And this... That's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, 2000. Okay. And we should also maybe back up a little bit for people that are listening to this program and don't know who R. Kelly was. As you mentioned, he he was, and maybe for some people still is, uh, the touchstone artist uh, in R&B for an entire generation or two. A hundred million albums sold. When we put it in perspective, no artist in Chicago has ever sold more. Not the great Curtis Mayfield, no one. 100 million albums sold, a quarter of a billion dollars generated for himself, 100 billion dollars for Jive Records, uh, you know, and collaborations with everyone from Whitney Houston and Lady Gaga to Justin Bieber <laughs> and uh, uh, any number of hip hop artists, Chance the Rapper. That's you talk in the book too about how sometimes the black community is a little bit uh, wary of going after their own guys. Mm -hmm. And do you think it was a money thing too, the reason that this took so long to see the light of day? Oh, they absolutely. they were making so much money off of him? Everybody was making money off him, whether we're talking about Operation Rainbow Push uh, and the Baptist power structure of Jesse Jackson and James Meeks were taking his money and bringing school children to his court hearings, uh, third graders dressed in T-shirts saying, free R. Kelly. Yeah, uh, that was a know, rough, rough, rough passage to read. You and know, also the, when he got out on bail, he went to, I believe, an elementary school. He, he cheekily paid uh, $100,000 bail with, uh, or $70,000 bail with $700 bills or or whatever it was, or 700000 You know, it, it was absurd. And he went and sang it at a kindergarten graduation ceremony. That's what it was, yeah. When I was Reverend Meeks, yeah. I, the Frey R. Kelly kids with the T-shirts and then that, yeah. that going from that to that. I, oh, and it, Meeks appeared on TV with him, defending him, saying I'm his spiritual advisor. You know, the black money power structure of Chicago never spoke out about Kelly. Not Oprah, not a word. Not Michael Jordan, uh, who would occasionally play ball with him, and, and they collaborate on Space Jam. Uh, you know, not the Obamas. Uh, you know, but this isn't unique. Nobody uh, was speaking out against him. And, you know, literally, you can go and talk to four women on the south or west sides of this city, any four women, and they will have stories of him cruising Kenwood Park uh, Academy, uh, you know, uh, uh, the the uh, Whitney Young, uh, you know, um, it, it the Evergreen Plaza shopping mall, the Rock and Roll McDonald's, and if it wasn't first person story, it was my cousin, my sister, my auntie. This was never a secret, uh, and I felt when I got that fax that began this reporting, uh, not right away. I slept on it for a few days, thinking here's somebody trying to tear down a successful black superstar. But the level of specificity ate at me throughout Thanksgiving weekend, and we started reporting on it, and every fact in that fax has proven to be true. Uh, but, y you know, this was never a secret. I felt when we published our first story in December 2000 that we were late. We were a decade late. Victim number one was 1991. And now here we are uh, almost 30 years later that it's taken this long. So people say, well, 
you know, must be satisfying to see justice. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't feel that at all because I know the names of 48 women whose lives he's ruined. And what they have said to me is it's all too little too late. So to me, it's a great tragedy. I actually have an R. Kelly story. Um, in 2004, I was actually in rehab, and we used to go to Export Gym in Piper's Alley, and he would come in his tour bus, pull up in front of the gym, and bring like a posse of guys in, and they would just go around and hitting on all the women in the gym. I didn't know who he was. I don't come from the R&B scene, but um, at the time, I was in punk bands and things like that, but he... I was like, who? and I remember he had a cast on his arm, yeah, and I was point. like, why would you come to the gym with a broken arm? You know, and he was just like going up to the women on the exercise machines and hitting on everybody. And again, I had no idea who he was, and then I listened to his music. It's, it's not my cup of tea. I, I, I think his lyrics, they remind me of like eighth graders, like uh, watching a porno or something. I don't know. It's not my cup of tea. Well, you know, yeah. You know, Ronan Farrow at this moment has a bestseller about the power structures that enabled uh, and covered up for, um, you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein uh, and, and others. Um, and uh, it, 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 there are literally thousands of people in Chicago, from tape operators to the people who worked at that gym, people who worked at his favorite hotels and restaurants, to his longtime manager accountant, who is indicted now as a co-conspirator. Uh, you know, thousands of people saw this behavior, and thousands of people looked the other way. Radio companies, street reps, and, and uh, DJ promotion people. And, you know, it's uh, uh, Robert likes them young. I think nobody wanted to look and say, I mean, but yet there's difference, right? I teach uh, 18 to 20-year-olds at Columbia. I have uh, two giant lecture classes this semester with 350 freshmen, all right? There's a big difference between 18 and 14 and 15. And uh, especially in the eyes of the law, I mean, it's just... Oh, I think in the eyes of morality and Oh, humanity. yeah, that too, of course. <laughs> not to deny any I'm not, <laughs> women her, her I'm not arguing that, trust no. me, yeah. One of the things I, I kind of do want to just go back because I one of the things I don't think people necessarily who are not interested in R&B, and I, I have several R. Kelly stories myself because one of my uh, friends was working with him as a sound engineer mm -hmm. uh, in the 2000s. Um, he did hang around the Rock and Roll McDonald's. He actually oh, went yeah, he, once behind the counter and was flipping burgers for people yeah, yeah. that I witnessed. Um, Which, but, I mean, ask yourself, who who has sold 100 million records would hang at the rock and roll. It, he had a regular table where he would yes. scope out the girls coming through. It the did door. strike me as rather strange that he enjoyed being at the rock and roll McDonald's. Yeah. Um, it strikes me as strange that anyone would enjoy being at the rock and yeah, roll McDonald's. Is, well, that's just me. Now is, it's the green McDonald's. You know, it's now they the have green solar McDonald's. panels. Yeah. Oh, that's what, good. However, one of the things that I think, um, and I think you, you talk about this in the book, which is why I want to make sure people are clear on this. Aside from the, the amount of money the guy raised and aside from the amount of albums that he raised, he had something to say musically, which is why so many people loved him and yeah. were willing to look the other way in the way that I think people were for Michael Jackson, the yeah. allegations that have been made about Jackson. Uh, and I want to be careful about that because, you know, he's not here to defend himself and they are allegations. But, you know, R. Kelly, I, I keep hearing from people even now while the Weight of the evidence against him seems to be quite damning. You know, let's let's not be foolish. He's never going to breathe fresh air. Yeah, I mean, let's no. let's not be ridiculous. There are still people who say, you know, R. Kelly's music was one of the most important things to me mm -hmm. in Chicago in X period, and it, it 
I think we should mention that and talk about that a little bit because as an artist, um, he did do something that gained him an incredible amount of goodwill that, as you, I think, alluded to, he then abused, and there was a power structure that he put in place, because we haven't even talked about the cult, which we're going to get to, but we really should talk a little bit about why he was so special in terms of that Chicago, because it it is an unusual thing. Well, special in Chicago, but special in many places. I mean, he has a, a, a devoted fan base in Africa because he toured twice to Africa. Uh, it's around the world. I mean, all you have to do is look at what the sociologists and or my students call black Twitter to look at his uh, adamant defenders to this day. Um, I want to make it clear. I, I've been a pop music critic my entire life. You know, this is my love. Look at, look at the albums that, that form me, Okay. Uh, I wear them proudly on my, my, my sleeves. Um, you know, I believe that your life can be saved by rock and roll, as the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed wrote, right? And the song Rock and Roll. Um, but there's this flip side. If it's the ultimate tool, the reason I am not a fat racist cop in Jersey City or a sadistic prison guard or a depressed accountant in Montclair, like everybody I went to high school with at the old boys Hudson Catholic Regional School for Boys, right, mm-hmm. um, is I discovered this music and I discovered the writing about it. So the power of music, when it is your wedding song, when it is your prom song, when it is the song that plays at your child's kindergarten graduation, when every house party you've ever been to plays Step in the Name of Love or Ignition Remix, I understand it is no longer his, it is yours. This is my life. So to now reject that and what some academics are calling cancel culture, right, uh, is, is to ask you to turn off part of your life. And that's true uh, whether it's, you know, it was the Beatles or whether it was Woody Allen or whether it was uh, anybody. Now, you know, I understand that, but you cannot escape the context. I want people to be aware of the context. If you can still take pleasure from Step in the Name of Love and know that he has ruined the lives of 48 women whose names I know, and when I say ruin the lives, that sounds like hyperbole. Um, I've seen the scars on the wrist where they tried to kill themselves after he initiated sexual contact at 15. I, I've read the police reports of driving into traffic in an attempt to kill herself uh, you know, on Michigan Avenue. Uh, I, I've, I've seen the hospital report of taking a, a, a bottle of pills. And I know the pain that these women are suffering still. You know, you want to say they, they have, are getting their 15 minutes of fame and surviving R. Kelly and they're doing speaking. Look, look, look. You know, nobody comes out and rips out their soul and talks about their sexual assault to a fat white rock critic or anybody else, goes public against a very powerful, beloved, rich man, uh, and does it uh, for anything other than an an attempt to to shine a light on on wrongdoing. Because uh, nobody has benefited from this story, and and everybody has wound up worse by speaking out, uh, almost almost to a single uh, person. Yeah, that brings up kind of the next question I wanted to get to, was because... I think that this must have been a very difficult story to pursue as a, a white rock critic. Yeah, race plays you, into every aspect. You were not, though, on the morgue beat. You were not a city reporter. You were the guy that went to rock shows and wrote about music. And, and here, hip-hop and R&B, yeah. Right, but, but you, you were not a guy. You, all of a sudden, you have a major story about a public... When you really boil it down, you got a major story about a public figure in Chicago who's being accused of sexually abusing underage women. Yeah. It's the level of the kind of story that if it was the mayor, yeah. you know what I mean? Your, your top crime reporter would be on it. You're, you're a music critic, so what... 
did you do and what did your editors at the Sun-Times do? Because I, I worked in newspapers and media for a long time myself. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine, I can't use the word I would use, but the storm that, that hits you in terms of blowback and in terms of questioning of your credibility and questioning of your sources, because I think uh, on both sides of the equation, people would have said, Jim, you're a rock critic. You may not be equipped to do this story. How did you get in and actually do the hard reporting of this? Okay, there's a couple of questions there. Right. Uh, there are, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of autobiography in this book, uh, which is not uh, to glorify or aggrandize my cool, groovy lifestyle. When I write my memoir about being a music critic, um, you know, 10 people will read it. And my mom's dead, so it would have been 11. Um, you know... Uh, we'll read it, Jim. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'll give you guys copies. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I do that because I had spent the first five years of my uh, career as a beat and investigative reporter. I mean, I come from you guys. I come from DIY. I, you know, nobody was going to publish uh, my writing in New York, not The Village Voice, not Musician Magazine. You know, who's this fat, young, snotty punk saying Husker Du is more important than Bruce Springsteen? So I did what, what we all did in the 80s, the indie rock era. I did a fanzine, eight and a half by 11, Xerox, photocopied, you know, uh, stapled by hand. I can still feel the ghost indentation of the stapler. I handed out at CBGB and Maxwell's, but I went to journalism school at NYU. And I was a pretty good reporter. I put a councilman in jail for voter fraud. I covered a jail riot that I write about in the book. I I was a shoe leather reporter 12 hours a day, and then I'd go home and write about music at night. So when the Sun-Times hired me to be the music critic, Ebert did all the movies, I did all the pop music, Um, they knew that I uh, had these reporting chops. And, you know, sometimes it's you go and listen to the album and you review it, and sometimes, you know, famously, there was a police riot outside the Vic Theater when Public Enemy and Sonic Youth played together. That's and right. the critic who had reviewed that, uh, you know, talked about the mediocre concert and neither group was really on their game. Oh, really? Sort of ignoring <laughs> the dozen people who had been arrested. So in my time at the Sun-Times, I covered a lot of stories. You know, I had a piece of the E2 uh, tragedy of, of, you know, uh, 40 people being stampeded to death. Um, you know, I covered uh, Mayor Daley. Remember, remember, boys? You you are old enough to remember. Of course. No. The, first da- uh, the second Daley administration's uh, war on uh, raves, mm-hmm. the anti-rave ordinance. Oh, yeah. Yes, I you know, that well. and that monstrosity of an abortion across the, the Michigan Avenue here called Lollapalooza. How uh, you know it was a sweetheart deal with the Daly administration and then Emanuel. You know, I, I do not see the music community as separate from the real world. I do not see it as mere entertainment. Uh, I think it's at war with the real world, uh, always being encroached on, corporatized, commodified, corrupted, and threatened with extinction. And let's all just go look at uh, Sterling Bay and see if Hideout is going to exist anymore, okay? Um, You know, and sometimes they get to write about bands and talk to cool people. It's all part, it's like the best beat in the world. So I had those chops. And... The Sun-Times institutionally gave me all the support I could have ever asked for. I worked with Abdon Palish, who was the courts reporter, 
and Mary Mitchell was writing columns, you know, fierce voice for African-American women in this city. Abden, uh, by his own description, a, a, a you know, Polish-Irish leprechaun. He's about this big. So, you know, me and him are ringing doorbells on the south and west side. Uh, neither of us are members of the community. We did not, with a few notable exceptions, have doors slammed in our face. We had people hugging us and saying, thank you for listening. This man, this monster, hurt people I love. No one has wanted to hear our story. And I had an added advantage over Abden, okay? Which is, oh, wow, you're playing Mavis Staples. I got to interview Mavis Staples. And suddenly we're cousins. I'm talking to a 65-year-old grandmother, African-American on the west side, and I'm me. But, but suddenly, you know, I, I understood music. Very cool. We were talking, or you were talking about you know, how R. Kelly was such a large part of people's lives. And we have conversations on the show all the time about uh, literature historically you sure. know, with racial overtones or blatant racism. Um, and Jamie and I, and apparently, you know, we came up as punk rockers, and I excused a lot of bad behavior. Um, one of my favorite bands of all time was Fang from the mm -hmm. Bay Area, and the singer murdered his girlfriend. He got out of jail, went on tour. I went and saw him, you know, Sex Pistols. I mean, go across the board. And I can a lot of times separate the art from the artist, but the level that this is at for me, yeah. and again, I'm not an R. Kelly fan, it's so large and so, like, when I was reading the book, I had to, like, take breaks. And I'm not usually someone... I, that, I get that a lot. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. I'm not usually someone that's easily offended by any means. But just, I mean, I was like, how... I mean, it kept going. I mean, it was yeah. like, I couldn't believe it. it's like I'm flipping the page. I'm like, there's another one, you know? And, yeah. and that yeah. to me, I, I could never, if it was my favorite band in the world, let's say it was Nick Cave and the birthday party, I, I would have to be like, I'm done. Even though that was yeah. a huge part yeah. of my upbringing. Well, all right, so you want to get to the philosophical portion of the evening. Separating sure, the sure. art and the artist. That's <laughs> I, I have had to think long and hard about this. Oscar Wilde said, there is no such thing as a moral or immoral book. There's merely good or bad. But he also said, the core of a man uh, is an inescapable part of his art, right? So even he, the great uh, philosopher, I think, of arts criticism, was conflicted. Here is where I draw the line. If we were to impose a moral litmus test on every artist before we consume their art, we would have no art. That's true. I happen to like the Picasso in Daly Plaza very much. Uh, I know Picasso <clears throat> treated women very badly. I do not see it reflected in the art. I cannot uh, ever again watch Manhattan about a 60-year-old comedian dating a 17-year-old high school girl as if this is normal when I know what the Farrow family has said Woody Allen did to Ronan's sister, Mia's daughter, his stepdaughter. Um, you know, I had a long conversation with Ebert that formed a lot of my thinking. There are film studies professors who would show Triumph of the Will and talk about strictly the cinematography, uh, the accomplishment of a groundbreaking women director, woman director, Lenny Riefenstahl. Of course, she had 100 cameras because she was funded by the Nazi state. You can't look at the way that movie is shot and separate it from the fact that it shows half a million young men who are about to try to destroy a population and set the world on fire. The evil at its core is inseparable from any artistic merits it has. Now, this is one out of a million 
one, one out of 10,000, right? There are sick people who collect the jailhouse paintings of John Wayne Gacy when he sat for 10 years awaiting execution for killing more than 30 young gay boys, and he would paint clown faces, and he would dress up as a clown sometimes to lure them. There are sick people who collect... You know, Marilyn Manson owns the door of the LaBianca house where the Manson killers wrote, Pigs in Blood, Right? I, the, the, this, I think, if we, if we look at those extreme examples, then it, it sheds light. And I think in art, they're very rare. My life would be poorer if I could never listen to Off the Wall Again by Michael Jackson. But I will not listen to the last two albums of his career, which conveniently are his worst, because they are full of protestations of his innocence. You are trying, innocence, you're trying to crucify me like you crucified the Lord. There's an attack by name of the Santa Barbara County prosecutor who tried him for the first uh, case on, on underage sexual abuse. Um, uh, it is about his crimes. In R. Kelly's case, it's very easy. Almost his entire catalog from the beginning uh, Honey Love through I Admit, which name checks me, is about his vision of hedonism, which is I will take my sexual pleasure wherever I desire without concern of my partner ever. Or he's praying for forgiveness for unnamed sins. And I always wanted to, you know, Robert, Robert, uh, please, could you expand on those sins a little bit? What exactly were they? We only have a couple seconds before break, but I did want to uh, make one observation and, and just ask your, your opinion on this. When you first broke the story, uh, and it was published in the paper, um, you guys were surprised that no one else picked it up. You guys yeah, were we surprised really were. that it, it landed on deaf ears. How did you, what was your feeling at that time? We were depressed. We were being vilified by B96 and, and every black radio station in Chicago. We were getting hate mail. Uh, we were, uh, uh, yeah, we, you know, we had met some of the victims and their families. And we had seen the pain, and we had proven the case, we thought. There's never in 19 years of reporting been a single retraction, clarification, or correction. Everything I reported. And, you know, the only vindication I feel is when the federal indictments came out, and I'm reading 41 felony counts, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, there it is now, finally in black and white, 20 years late. Um, but there it all was. And, you know, that's all too little too late for those women he hurt. That's how I feel about that. It's, it's a, you know. We're going to come right back. You're listening to I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. We are with the author, the music critic, the teacher, Jim DeRogatis. Please give it up for him right now. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of I-94. Stop dropping cups on the floor, audience members. We are live, as you can hear, at the Dial Bookshop. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack is unavailable to join us. As I previously mentioned, he's selling Frigidaires to people in Venezuela. We are joined today by the author of Solace, The Case Against R. Kelly. It is out now from Abrams Press. He is a longtime uh, journalist, teacher, critic here in Chicago. Please give it up for Jim DeRogatis. So, Jim, just before the break, we were talking about how your initial reporting on R. Kelly uh, fell on deaf ears and, and you were kind of depressed. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I, I believe you mentioned it in your book, uh, but I remember um, in the 2000s when I, and I've lived on the South Side now for about 25 years, there were sex tapes for yeah. sale with yeah. R. Kelly in them. So I, I was confused a little bit reading your book as to how anybody... Um, could think that Mr. Kelly was not up to at least 
strange behavior. Because as I recall, uh, and in fact, when, when a buddy of mine was working for him, he used to carry around a bag full of videotapes, he would which carry, I presumed yeah. were, were sex tapes. He would uh, carry his collection of VHS cassettes and leave it on the sidelines when he played ball. And they would be liberated by people and, and work their way to the streets. Um, and uh, yeah, many people had seen R. Kelly sex tapes. They were for sale on street corners, not only in Chicago, but across the country. When he was finally indicted in 2002 for the tape that came to me at home, 26 minutes and 39 seconds of him uh, having sexual contact with a 14-year-old girl. Uh, and urinating in her mouth and ordering her around. You know, and to be clear, this is a year or two after Tommy Lee and Pam Anderson uh, became famous for a sex tape. It was stolen from their bedroom, and it was bootlegged, and so they decided to get in on the action and sold the copyright, and according to Rolling Stone, made like $5 million. This isn't that. This isn't any Kardashian thing you've seen. Oh, it's this child is, pornography. This is, the, above and beyond, it, it is the horrifying document of a rape. This girl has no uh, a sense of joy or, or presence. It, it is as if she is a disembodied zombie being ordered to do what he tells her to do, which in calls, includes call me daddy uh, several times. And he calls her by name. Um, and now this was bootlegged. For I received the tape on February 2nd, 2002. We wrote about it on February 8th, 2002. He was indicted for making child pornography in June 2002. But from February through June, it was widely available for sale across America. It should, at that point, have been a federal case. But whether the state's attorney at the time, Dick Devine, was proprietary and wanted to keep the case here, or Patrick Fitzgerald, the U.S. attorney, wasn't interested, ha, I don't think so, the feds wanted the case. Now the feds have him. We saw the same thing play out this year. Kim Fox rushed to press Illinois charges before the feds could drop their indictments. But the serious cases are the federal indictments out of Chicago and New York. I've never seen anything like it. You know, they include a RICO prosecution. They are trying to go after him the way they went after the mob and saying this was an organized conspiracy of many men who enabled criminal behavior. And they've got, he's got two uh, conspirators indicted with him. So it's interesting. It is interesting. Another thing is interesting is Pitchfork put them as, their, as yeah. the headliner after all this happened. And I, yeah. I believe that's the year that Jesus Lizard played. 2013. And I went that year for the Jesus Lizard. But the person that I was with at the time, I was telling her, mm -hmm. I'm like, how can they make our Kelly headline this? He made this, you know. And I knew about the tape. And I'm like, and if you haven't seen the tape, you've at least seen Chappelle or heard yeah. someone talk about it. And obviously he parodied it. And it wasn't, you know, it didn't explain really what was going on. But we had a huge argument about that. And I was there. And, I'm, and I, I was leaving as he was going on. There was just a sea. Yeah. of African-American women coming towards the stage. And I yeah. was just like, how is this even happening? Well, you know, I, I wrote a lot about that uh, for the blog I had at the time at BEZ. And uh, what was unforgivable to me, as we talked earlier, if he played at your wedding, your prom, your kid's graduation, and he is part of the fabric of your life in the South Side, that's one thing. But in 2013, he very consciously reached out uh, via his manager, who is now one of the people who are indicted, Daryl McDavid, uh, to go for the white hipster 
craft beer drinking, bearded uh, grad student crowd. Uh, he, he headlines Bonnaroo, the jam crowd. He headlines uh, Coachella along with Phoenix, uh, Sofia Coppola's baby daddy's band, right? Uh, and he headlines Pitchfork, half a mile from where I sat and saw the scars on that girl's wrist uh, on the west side. Now, Pitchfork's major domos, founders, who have since sold out, you know, to Condé Nast, so much for indie rock, um, you know, Ryan Schreiber and Chris Kasky, uh, would not talk to me about their logic in booking Kelly. They, they were fans. They treated it as sexualized kitsch. Super sack, you know, super. He was the sexual super freak. Uh, he was the Pied Piper. This is kitsch. Um, but I had done so much reporting and I was screaming and yelling at them in print uh, and in audio blogs about this. Uh, you know, to me, Mike Reed, the third part of the Pitchfork trio, he's an African American kid, grew up in Evanston, uh, played football, books the Constellation, great jazz drummer, uh, you know, as well as booking Pitchfork. He knew. He knew. He knew. And so to know, I mean, I, I, I can't hold the, the 30,000 kids in the softball field responsible if all they know is Space Jam when they were in their playpen, I believe I can fly, and Chappelle, and, you know, the barbershop jokes, you know. Uh, yeah, R. Kelly was set up. He set up the camera, Cedric the Entertainer says, right? But they don't really know. Well, you know, the people who were making money knew, and they didn't care. And that's what's unconscionable, because they would not have booked an anti-Semitic white hate band. They would not have booked, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, they wouldn't book Kid Rock. What's the difference? Yeah, it's interesting that it brings up another question I had for you, actually, because when R. Kelly, in the, in the, the time period that you're talking about, between 2002 and 2013, he uh, was put on trial and then essentially got off and essentially then was able to delay a lot of things. He was able to, to, it was, it broke every record in Cook County for the period between indictment and trial. 2002, yeah. he's indicted, he was acquitted in June of 2008. Now, talk a little bit about why that was, because you, you make some fairly strong characterizations in the book of the people oh, that yeah. were helming that, and I'd, I'd rather you say it rather than I. Oh, yeah, I keep hoping Judge Vincent Gone comes after me and has, cites me for contempt or, uh, or just calls and yells at me, because I would like to get him on the record. Mm -hmm. The same judge who heard the shooting trial of Laquan McDonald, 16-year-old black boy, shot 16 times in the back, uh, presided over the Kelly case. Also the brown chicken And massacre. the brown chicken, Palatine yeah. chicken Yeah, massacre. for the younger folks, there was a, a robbery gone horribly bad in Turned Palatine. Was murder. that in the 90s? Yeah. yeah and down. seven people were seven. But, but the difference is when... Gone heard the McDonald, uh, we call it the McDonald case. I, I honor the victim and not that officer who shot him. Uh, you know, he was upbraided by the Illinois Supreme Court for patently unconstitutional behavior, consistently retiring to closed chambers to hear motions where the records were sealed and not released to the public. And that time, uh, an attorney named Damon Dunn, uh, representing a coalition of Chicago media uh, uh, forces, uh, sued, and he was, he was really uh, upbraided. Uh, but in the Kelly trial, he did the same thing. There were 123 motions ruled on in chambers, and the records of 90% of what happened in that case, because it was six years of these hearings, uh, remain sealed to this day. So we do not know. The part that was in open court 
was of course public, uh, but there were no cameras and there's no transcript generated and good luck uh, trying to piece, I, I pieced together that trial from uh, every single story that had been written in some 14 media accounts every day of the trial. So I, I, was, I was looking a little, you know those cliched serial killer movies where they have the billboard on the wall of all the dots and the, yes, yeah, that, yes. that's what, I've got trying to put my house. Yeah, yeah, th yeah, there yeah, you go, yeah. everybody does, right? Yeah. It's like Homeland, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, this guy's a bad player. He was corrupted, I think, uh, by the fame and money that Kelly had. And most other times he was just a plain racist. But, you know, uh, money in our society trumps uh, even race. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's... Look, Judge Vincent Cohen doesn't belong on the bar, period. He's, he's a million years old. He's about to retire. And every year when he would every term when he would run for re-election the judicial review committees would cite his mercurial nature and not recommend that he be voted in but who the hell reads the judges endorsements you just vote on the top and you go all the way down I have a question. That's an evil son of a... That's what I'm trying to say. I could, I could give you every word but I don't want to get you guys FCC fine. That's, that's Jim's opinion, not necessarily lumping radios. So. Vincent, you have my number. I left it for you a hundred times. Call just, me. Just to clarify, you said there was no transcript of the, of the trial. Yeah. Now, generally, yeah. I've only been to court for misdemeanors. Yeah. My own. Um, but how <laughs> are, aren't most felony trials? Oh, there's oh, always a transcript, oh, correct? Oh, it was. Isn't it, that the, it like, was, part of the there, process? It, it was taken. Oh. But a copy is not generated unless there's somebody pays for it. $4 a page for a six-week trial. $4 a page, yeah. right? So uh, Kelly had no reason to appeal. He didn't need the transcript. The state couldn't try him again. Uh, and so to this day, the, the transcript's never been generated. You know, usually the way uh, you can get a transcript without having to pay $4 a page is one of the attorneys... Uh, you know, is appealing, and they are happy to make copies after they buy it. But and there was no audio, so it's not like you could sit and listen to the. Uh, I mean, it's as if this is 2008. This is not 1944, right? You that know was what I mean? My confusion. This, this is the the new millennium, you know. But it's also Cook County. Now there were four civ publicly filed civil lawsuits uh, that that uh, Kelly settled. And good luck going to try to find them. There are huge parts of those files that are missing, depositions that went astray, right? And, uh, you know, I mean, the fix was in on every Cook County, Chicago level, you know. I mean, you know how things are done here. Except, I got to say, for the cops. You know, mostly white cops from Bridgeport. Um, you know, knew, knew, and, and, and were bothered as fathers, and in some cases mothers, uh, their daughters were white, these girls were black. I don't believe they saw the difference. That's rare. It's rare to say a good word about a Chicago cop. But the cops fought hard to, to build the evidence against Kelly. And uh, they were limited in what they could do by Judge Gawne not allowing any evidence of other girls, other videotapes, a pattern of behavior. He reduced it to one girl on one tape. And now we know, thanks to the federal indictment, that girl is now state's evidence. She, uh, you know, she was caught in a perjury trap. She lied to the grand jury. Her mother and father lied. They were all paid off, and it's all in black and white now in a federal indictment. So, uh, you know, it's weird as a reporter to believe that's what happened for 20 years, and now you see it uh, in a federal indictment. Well, the length of this is just yeah, astronomical. It's epic. You know, it's when epic. You, the way you put it is, you know, 
two generations, three decades. You know, when I was yeah. reading the book, I didn't obviously put it in that in that way, but that's just a ridiculously long time to commit horrible behavior. Yeah, and to get away with it, and nobody care. You know, the difference that Oprah could have made saying a word. Yeah. The difference that uh, the Obamas could have made. I mean, the difference that so many. The difference. You know, you got to understand that sometimes we're like in a lifeboat with six leaks and we're bailing the entire time, even back in 2000. Uh, the, the Tribune could have outnumbered, outpowered us, 10 reporters on this story, and they just were not interested. Ten years ago, I was on a panel in Minneapolis with Mark Anthony Neal, who's a great pop music critic and an academic. He runs uh, African-American studies at Duke University, and he said, one white girl in Winnetka, and this would have been a different story. And he's absolutely right. Yeah. If it was Liz Fair that R. Kelly, not even without being the famous part of Liz Fair, right. but one white girl from Winneka whose mom is a docent at the Art Institute, and this was, it was a different story. But, you know, to be clear, I am only amplifying what hundreds of black women have told me when I say nobody matters less than young black girls in our community. It's just in our society. You know, it's just absolutely true. I want to shift gears a little bit just because we're running out of time. And, and I do want to mention the fact that you've done other things than just write about R. Kelly. Uh, contrary to uh, I Contrary admit. to popular yeah. belief. Well, you know, he <laughs> sings. And I admit, yeah. you know, you could drop in the audio here if we were. You know, I, Jim, it, De Jim yeah. DeRogatis or whatever your name is, off my name, you done made a career. There you go. Uh, 25 years trying to bring me down. But I pray for you and your family. Well, that's good. That's thank good. you, Robert. I, I feel thank blessed. Thanks, I Robert. feel blessed. Hashtag yes, blessed, you. Yeah. Among the other things you've written, and we just happen to have a couple of copies here, you've written a history of actually one of my favorite bands about the Velvet Underground. I was like the editor. I wrote the 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 uh, uh, history of the group, and then there were other writers who I was really honored to work with, who each wrote about uh, one of the albums. Well, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your other work, and you know, you t you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Uh, how much music meant to you. Mm -hmm. But could you talk a little bit, because we, we share a, a mutual admiration for Lester Bangs, and I know yes. you wrote a book about him. There you go. Talk, uh, I, I saw that. I was, <laughs> we're getting there. Talk a little bit about why music criticism in particular appealed to you, and a little bit about some of the other projects you've done, about why, why the Velvet Underground is, is a great place to start. Well, I, you know, I discovered the Velvet Underground through Lester Bangs, you know, and, and uh, you know, when I was 17 uh, at Hudson, Hudson Catholic Regional School for Boys, I, uh, I took a journalism class, and it was the football team and wrestlers, because, you know, short sentences, simple words. The smart kids <laughs> took masterpieces of Western literature, and I took both. And I was driving my journalism teacher crazy with these questions about what is the new journalism, Hunter Thompson, Joan Didion, you know, what is the difference between criticism and journalism, uh, the role of investigative reporting in the wake of Woodward and Bernstein and Silkwood. And he said, look, you are a pain in my ass. Just go interview a hero in your chosen field and write it up. And so at 17, I spent a day with Lester Bangs. And it, everything I've done in my career since stems from that. So two weeks ago, I was... Jim, uh, before you go any further, yeah. do you want to... I, I imagine some of our listeners don't know who Lester Bangs is. you want to give like a... 30-second history. Yeah, 30-second history of who he was, because uh, he's very important. I think he's the most important uh, writer about uh, popular music, rock and roll, who, who ever lived. Uh, America's greatest rock critic, uh, a philosopher, uh, a damn entertaining writer. Uh, the music criticisms, Bukowski and Kerouac... Uh, all rolled into one, with a little Oscar Wilde. 
uh, you know, minus the, the, the aestheticism. Uh, he was a champion of punk rock. He was a champion of heavy metal. Uh, and so anyway, he, he made two years at Grossmont Junior College in El Cajon. And 10 years ago, uh, the only other person of fame down there was Greg Luganis. You know, they did a walk of fame, you know, it's like Lester Starr and, and Luganis, and they do this, this reading every... <laughs> do they hop back and forth? Like I guess so. Between the stars? They do this reading every October, and they've been trying to come up with a little, you know, that academic stipend to fly me out there to El Cajon, just uh, east of San Diego, for 10 years, and I finally got to go. So what I talked about was the moral core, the belief that Lester Bangs who was raised a Jehovah's Witness by a hardcore mother who allowed no music in the house whatsoever, because that is the window to the devil. Um, he saw art in, in very dramatic terms as, you know, uh, a fight against nihilism, against the negation of death. He told me when we sat there two weeks before he died, uh, good rock and roll. I asked him, you know, I was like, I, I got my notepad, right? I'm like fat, clueless kid from Jersey City, took the train to interview Lester Bangs, and I said, what is your definition of good rock and roll? And it took him a good uh, minute before he answered, which I was surprised, even then, my, like, my first interview, and, and he didn't have that down as boilerplate, and he finally said, good rock and roll is something that makes you feel alive. So he saw art of value as that which is life-affirming, and art that needed to be attacked by the critic or anyone else as that which was life negating. And uh, I, I, you know, it was an awfully dramatic way to look at it, but goddamn, Lizzo makes me feel alive. And I'm sorry, but Chief Keef makes me sick to my stomach. You know, it's nihilistic and violent and homophobic and misogynistic, and Lizzo should be our damn president. Fair enough. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. it totally There's makes sense. There's my entire phil philosophical, uh, aesthetic, artistic canon. Yeah, that the the drill scene, and uh, I, I never was able. I, I love like '90s hip hop, like yeah, but well, the, yeah, you know, PE man. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, Jim uh, Scott, I see. Uh, 13 floor elevator. Yeah, yeah, we TV. got it. Who's Gradu? Who's Gradu? Tattoo. I only Savages. Have, I have Slayer. Savages yeah. and Wire played on that oh. uh, same bill with. Um, uh, I, I was Kelly there. That wasn't the Jesus Lizard that year too. It might have been. Yeah, they're yeah. my favorite band of all time. But talk a little bit about, uh, if you would, Jim, the role of music criticism right now. Because when I, I also was a music critic for a number of years back in Syracuse for the Syracuse Newspapers Group, mm -hmm. um, late '80s. Uh, newspapers, I believe, that don't. I think they've both folded now. So there's. I don't think Syracuse has a newspaper anymore. But. When I was uh, doing that, the only way you found out about music that you cared about was to read mm -hmm. and to read things. And you know, we've you've made an aside about Pitchfork being sold out to Condé Nast. You know, Pitchfork used to be a place that you actually could read and maybe find out something. And I think that's mm -hmm. evaporated. Is there still a place for written music criticism today, or have things changed so dramatically that? people are finding music in, in completely different ways from the generation that you and I came from. I don't see it that way. Okay. You're asking about, what, what you really are, are asking is, you know, can you get paid to do music criticism No, actually, that's, that's... No, 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 no. That's I, 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 but that's sort of like the end result. I see that every single person in this room is a critic. Mm -hmm. They cared enough 
or have nothing better to do or like the cookies, right? To mm -hmm. be here on a Thursday night. They're lost. Most of these people are lost, actually. Most of them. They think this is something about bus stops. You know, I think every single one of us who cares about art, film, theater, or visual art, or music, um, we are a critic. If we were all to walk up the block to the Art Institute and look at Nighthawks, we would see 25 different paintings because we are 25 different individuals. And the magic of criticism is the conversation we have where what I see is different than what you see. I'm not, and it's not about changing somebody's mind or that consumer guide, buy this now. It's, it's you're really writing about yourself and your values when you write about what you see in the art. So, you know... In so many ways, there's as much passionate discussion about the music as ever, you know. And I started out writing about music for free out of passion. If there's no place left to do it and get paid for it, I'm still writing about it, talking about it on the radio out of a place of passion. Um, you know, the democratization. Trust me, we're not getting paid for this. Yeah, no, no, we're <laughs> yeah, I mean, You know, it's it's DIY. You think we're getting paid? I'd love, love to see those pictures. No, no, I didn't mean here. I meant back in Syracuse. Maybe you got fifteen dollars <laughs> for a review. You know, I think it was fifteen or it was fifteen or yeah. twenty bucks. Yeah. yeah, it still is. I think it went the up to like seventy-five. You know, well, that but, brings yeah. up a good point. Though. I mean, Jamie and Mike and I have done <laughs> seventy-five hours mm -hmm. book criticism for free because yeah. it's something we're passionate about and we're friends. Yeah, and. It's it's an interesting thing because a lot of it's not our careers. We all have jobs, and now people, a lot of people, can't make a career out of uh, writing about music or literature. Well, or yeah, well a lot of people can't make a career out of writing about uh, what's happening in Syria. You, you know what True. I mean? Yeah. Right now, exactly. I mean, we are at a fundamental uh, turning point uh, in in journalism and in our society where if we can no longer afford to have reporters on the ground digging and ferreting for truth, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're not going to exist as a democracy anymore. So, you know, the fact is nobody, you know, everybody reads tweets and nobody supports the New York Times or the Washington Post. And, and that's the dwindling number of, of, of or, that, or the Guardian or whoever you choose, right. you know. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's really troublesome. Well, and that brings up actually you – skipped ahead to the last two questions. I was going to ask you, getting back to your book about R. Kelly, because you did write this book about R. Kelly. It's called Solus, The Case Against R. Kelly. It's out now from Abrams, which I should remind everybody of. If it was today, do you think you would have had the time or the resources to track down this case on R. Kelly? That's a good question. Um, when I did the cult story in 2017 and Geronda's story six weeks later, um, you know, BuzzFeed News had been one of the only news organizations brave enough to, uh, I mean, they broke the news of the Trump dossier right. and everything, minus the water sports scene only in, in, in the Russian hotel room, has proven to be true, right? Um, they were fearless. And I got the support of a great editor, Marissa Carroll, and Shawnee Hilton over her, and two great media lawyers who vetted every word. And uh, everybody I worked with at BuzzFeed was laid off uh, about a year ago. So that doesn't exist anymore. I've been lucky and done a couple of pieces since for The New Yorker. Uh, you know, uh, The Sun-Times, I don't think, could do this with what's left of The Sun-Times today. The Tribune never cared in 2000, and I don't think they'd care today. And they have fewer resources. I don't know. I don't know where this story... You know, what's kind of frightening, uh, there's a great media columnist at The Washington Post, Margaret Sullivan, who wrote about... 
the difficulty I had getting the BuzzFeed story published. Because before I went to BuzzFeed, there were three news organizations that passed on it. And those were uh, uh, the Chicago Reader and MTV News, uh, when Jessica Hopper was editing it, and WBEZ, you know. And then I went to the Tribune and the LA Times, and neither of them was interested. Uh, so, uh, but I had worked f with each of those others for three months, uh, and I had 15 sources on the record, a pile of uh, uh, documents, and it had been the story had been vetted twice by First Amendment lawyer Damon Dunn, who did every story since the first one in the Sun Times. That's about as solid as one of these pieces get. But in the new Farrow book, he talks about NBC killing his right. reporting on Weinstein, and he had to go to the New Yorker. So, how many of these stories? Are we not reading? That's, That's the question. You took the words right out of That's my what mouth. Marcus I'm like, Sullivan how much is going on right now there that is we a could lot. possibly know about? There is a lot. And, and then there's, there's, the ones, covering th it. there's the ones that have been reported. What is it, 26 women uh, uh, say that Trump has, has uh, accosted them yeah. that, that people don't care about? So, you know, there's plenty of people. And, you know, Brett Kavanaugh sits on the Supreme Court. So we only have a minute left, Jim. And once again, we, we have been speaking with the author of Solace. It's the case against R. Kelly. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. The, the question that is obvious when we came in, and I, I wonder if you could just sum up for us, everybody knew R. Kelly was mm -hmm. doing these things to young girls. Everybody who was a music fan, everybody in the South and West Sides, even people in newsrooms knew about it. Why did no one do anything about it before you guys did? I don't think they thought those black girls mattered. I, I am not some superstar reporter with the magic power to get young women to uh, like open up to me. I right? think women in general, I mean, we just talked about Trump. Yeah. You know, people aren't listening to them. They, I mean, I, and I, it's, it's revolting. The biggest single asset you have as a reporter is being willing to listen. And sometimes it takes patience. It took nine months for Dominique Gardner to speak to me on the record. It took five years for Geronda. It took nine months of the Savages and the Clarys being patient, not talking to anyone for that cult story. And Tiffany Hawkins, girl number one, 1991. Lawsuit was filed in 1996. I never met her until January of this year. You know, and she said, thank you. There's nobody else I would talk to. That was a nice... That was like one of the nice parts of the book, I it, guess. It starts with her. It should end with her. Because yeah. it's not about that monster. It's about the women. Yeah. Everybody, Jim us. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I-94 is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Dim DeRogatis, author of Soulless, The Case Against R. Kelly, out now from Abrams. This episode was originally taped in front of a live studio audience at the Dial Bookshop on October 17th and was originally aired on October 20th, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.